You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of February 2024. Politics in the UK has one of its weirder weeks in recent memory. Politics in the US grows still more feverish and Ukraine reflects on two years of resistance. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who crashed out of the office backgammon tournament earliest were Chris Lord, Julia Lassica and Gunnar Grunlid. They'll discuss the day's big stories, introduce some music, and our weekly letter from is, on the eve of the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a letter from Kiev. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined first of all today by Monocle's US editor Chris Lord, who despite the title is not in the US. He's right here in the UK, specifically in the studio. Hello, Chris. Great to be with you, Andrew. Um, I I did emphasise the fact that you are here in Mm. the UK because we are going to talk shortly about UK politics and I just worried that listeners would think, why are they talking to the US editor about UK politics? But you are here and you have been watching uh, events unfold. But first of all, as we were just chatting, you are going back to the US Mm. very shortly. Do you have any idea yet what your first order of business is once you're back? I definitely, after two weeks on the road, Andrew, definitely need to wash some socks. I think that's that's (laughs) number one. Uh, And then I think I need to kind of plug in a little bit back into the US. It's funny, you know, you you step away from that country for just a short period. I'm back here really on some kind of administrative stuff I needed to do on this side uh, to keep me out there. Um, But you leave and that febrile atmosphere that you mentioned in your intro, you know, it, it's incredible. You don't have to step out very long and you suddenly, it does seem very, very far away. So I need to plug back into the story. There's a lot happening this weekend with the primary uh, in South Carolina. And so catch up a little bit and, and then no doubt get on the road and get back around around the US. Well, we will start here in the UK before moving seamlessly along to some congruent resonances in the United States. Even by the formidably bizarre standards of the post-Brexit epoch, it was a strange week in the House of Commons. On Wednesday night, Parliament descended into uproar over attempts to vote on competing amendments to a demand for a ceasefire in Gaza, a row rendered even more surreal by the complete lack of impact any such resolution would have on actual events. The Speaker of the House, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, justified his unusual decision to allow opposition parties to move amendments in such circumstances, partly, he said, out of concern for the safety of MPs, who have come under pressure from constituents aggrieved by events in the Middle East. Um, Chris, first of all on that, um, Sir Lindsay was widely mocked uh, for this justification, but it often strikes me um, that it has been strangely forgotten here in the United Kingdom that there are 650, I think, members of the House of Commons. In the last eight years, two of them have been assassinated. Uh, this is not necessarily uh, theoretical, what Sir Lindsay is worrying about. Absolutely, Andrew. And in fact, the one, the, the, the most recent one, Sir David Amos, you know, killed in his st- surgery, in mm-hmm. his constituency, constituency surgery. Um, 
Look, you know, what what strikes me, you know, as you said in your intro there, that there is a lot of sort of parliamentary process here that I think that when it's been unfolding in the week, being sat here in London watching this unfold, you can kind of get caught up in this sort of outrage of the Conservatives who say, well, look, this is far too uh, lenient towards Labour and, and Lindsay Hoyle traditionally, you know, prior to becoming the Speaker of the House was a Labour politician and so on. But I think when he... As you mentioned, when he tried to ju- explain his justification for his thinking, he basically said it was to secure the safety of members of the House, that he basically didn't want to come back to the House and say that another member had been either killed or attacked or found themselves on the wrong side of somebody with, you know, extreme, extreme views who were willing to act them out and, and, and sort of, you know, some direct action on the streets of Britain. It strikes me that, I think, to your point, two high-profile politicians killed in recent years, we've reached a point, I think, where more and more politicians, not just here in the UK, but all over the world, certainly where I usually am in the US, are more and more fearful that what they say and what they believe and how they vote could have impacts on their personal safety and the safety of their family. And indeed, you know, as some of the discourses have been around this, whether they might find their personal homes picketed, whether they might well, find as, that... as has happened. With Tobias Elwood, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, who's a long-standing Tory grandee who has found himself and his family being picketed at home. Uh, you know, the Gaza war, the, what's happening there in Gaza, obviously incredibly inflames uh, tensions and also people, makes people very, very passionate. Um, but I do think there is an issue here of how democracies get dented when fear comes into the equation. Do you get a sense, though, when you refer earlier to the peculiar and febrile atmosphere of the United States. Mm. And I'm asking you because, frankly, it occurs to me I haven't been to the US for far too long. Um, has it got noticeably stranger in the period you've been living there? And, and obviously, this election is, even by recent standards, likely to be a pretty wild ride. Look, CNN did a great look at this. And, you know, in, that, in the period of the Trump presidency, there was an increase of politically motivated threats to public public officials from electors to ballot counters to, you know, um, House, uh, House of Representatives, Congress people uh, through to senators of a 178% rise in, in threats mm. to people's lives. What I feel, and I think it's it's it can so, so much seem like a conversation that's online, I think that actually what you do feel when you're there is a feeling that has drifted from the, 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 the fringes of the internet to much more uh, mainstream chat when you talk to people, a sense that there are forces at work within society that are trying to bring it down from the inside. And I think whenever you have that conspiratorial view, and I know it's something you're very mm. interested in, Andrew, especially in the case of the US, that conspira- that idea that there are deep states and conspiracy, that has gone from being so fringe to being so mainstream within American discourse. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always existed in sure. the United States. Sure. But yeah, that, that's what I'm wondering. The fact that it is now internalised as, well, as, as, as reality by a bewilderingly large plurality of the American electorate. And I moved out there not so long after the events of January 6th, where in, in 2021, when, of course, you know, you had the, the, the extraordinary storming of the Capitol building, which... You know, we have to say, see that as a profound moment where the fringe, you know, forcibly moved itself into public discourse, into the into the house of uh, the halls of power, using violence, and that is just an unstop- that is an un 
you know, you cannot d- deny that fact. So while that those numbers look extraordinary, you know, 178% rise in threats and so on, I just think there is an atmosphere that's taken that's taken place. And you do hear from congressmen and senators and so on who do come out and say, you know, I worry that down the line, people are going to start to self-censor and move their views mm-hmm. for fear of what the backlash is going to be. And, you know, frankly... Let's let's be clear. You know, we're in an age where there's been CPAC going on this week, the, mm-hmm. the Conservative Political Action Committee, where, you know, the discourse in that is about the deep state bringing people down and thwarting the will of the people. And when people feel their will is thwarted, unfortunately, what ends up happening is violence typically can follow. Well, we do want to talk uh, about Ukraine because it is the eve of the second anniversary and US attitudes to it. Uh, We will hear more from you shortly, Chris, but first we will hear from John Herbst, the former US ambassador to Ukraine. He reflected on the second anniversary of Russia's attack with Monocle's Chris Chermak. This is the most dangerous moment on the international stage since the high, heavy days, the high days, if you want to call it that, of the Cold War. You have a one of the world's two nuclear superpowers pursuing a an imperialist foreign policy to restore its influence across the space of what had been the Soviet Empire. And there's only a late recognition by the West how dangerous this moment is. And the place to defeat this revisionist powers in Ukraine and that's right now in doubt because of ridiculous political factors in the United States. Ultimately, because there's a small group of quasi-isolationists in the Republican Party in the House of Representatives that is holding up our aid to Ukraine. If we continue to provide aid to Ukraine the way we have the last two years, ultimately Putin will lose. If we stop aid, there's a good chance Putin will win. That will be a catastrophe for Ukraine and a major defeat for the United States, which will cost us in the long run. Is there something that makes you hopeful that we will choose the former path of those two that you described and actually well, approve the aid and continue our support? I suspect at the end of the day, we will find a way to continue the aid. Many people have been recalling Winston Churchill's famous statement, the United States always doing does the right things after it's tried out all the wrong things. So hopefully Churchill is a prophet at this moment. And in fact, there is a a very solid majority of Americans and American politicians who understand we have to provide aid to Ukraine to stop the Russians. So therefore, I think this probably will work out, but it's it's still going to take, I think, another two months or so to get past this current um, silliness. That was John Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, speaking to Chris Chermak. And just a final thought on this while we have you here, Chris, because this is something we have talked about a lot on this show and others. Uh, Those of us of a certain age can recall a period at which if there was one thing of which you could be certain in an uncertain world, it's that the Republican Party of the United States would be absolutely right behind a beleaguered Eastern European nation being born down upon by a predatory Russia. Incredibly, that appears to be no longer the case. So seriously, do you think this is actually going to be an election issue in the United States? Basically, the Republican Party making the pitch for abandoning Eastern Europe to Moscow. 
I just think from what we heard in that clip there, which is that, you know, if the US continues to provide aid as it has been doing, then eventually at a certain point, Putin will fall. I just think that a lot of Americans, frankly, and I have to say, traveling around the country and speaking to people exactly about this, I do hear more and more people simply saying to me, and, in, you know, I can see it reflecting polls, a feeling that they're not convinced that's the case. They're more and more thinking that they're finding, them, finding that America has once again found itself in an intractable situation as it did for 20 years in the Middle East, which is how do we, you know, where does this end? Where do we get, how do we get out of this? And I think, you know, those voices within the Republican Party who simply, you know, again, it comes a bit back to our conversation before, who simply do not, they don't buy the narrative, are very caustic, but also can be very convincing if you're starting to really question the narrative of we need to keep spending. You know, there is there is one element of this, Andrew, and I think that, you know, we have to sort of, we have to slightly think about what the American taxpayer has done for the last 50 years. I mean, they've kind of, by the, for all the sort of, you know, the absence in some respects in American society of some of the social safety nets that we take for granted in somewhere mm-hmm. here, like in the UK with regards to healthcare and so on, the American taxpayer has funded peace in many ways. Not all, not for all over the world. It's funded war as well. But it's created a sort of situation that we've took for granted for a long time of a sense of peace and a sense of a kind of world order and so on. I think that simply that is just that weariness is just setting in in a major way. And I hear it all the time from normal people. You know, they they don't they don't buy the narrative as much anymore. They just simply don't buy into it. And so to your point, to come back to your question, which is, is this going to be an election issue? I think what it is, again, it comes back to that feeling that that there is a state, deep state at work. There are forces at work that are not necessarily representing the views of the common people. That is so powerful. And, you know, Donald Trump is is, is wavers from one way to the other. And I I still, personally, despite what he said of late and, you know, with regards to he would encourage Russia to attack NATO members who don't pay their their due, it's actually quite unclear where he ultimately sits on that issue. Mm. There is a sort of, despite, you know, some of his statements, it wavers a little bit. But I do think it's emotive. And I do think that being concrete about how it ends can play very well with voters right now who see the country spending more, you know, putting, trying to spend more money. Obviously, it's still stuck in, the bill is still stuck in, in the House of Representatives, let's not, let's not forget. But they're trying to get more money over the line to send it to that country. And I think there is just a feeling of where does this end? Chris Lord, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio with me, Andrew Muller. Two years ago tomorrow, Russia launched a full-scale assault upon Ukraine, the beginning of a war that few at the time expected would still be raging two years later, testament to both the gallantry and ingenuity of Ukraine and the complacency and ineptitude of Russia. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Monocle researcher Julia Lassica. Um, Julia, first of all, uh, at the risk of stirring up what are doubtless extremely unpleasant memories. Two years ago, what do you recall of first understanding that this was actually happening? Well, I remember actually the most important thing that I remember that day was it was raining so much. And the rain, it was truly, it was pathetic fallacy because I couldn't think properly and you couldn't see through the rain. And so it was this feeling of not being able to know what to do. And like my family, like sitting under, you know, showers of bombs and rockets 
and me calling desperately, you know, the British, I don't know, embassy in Ukraine, calling my council leader, calling all sorts of different people and desperately looking for answers how could I could help them and then there's rain falling all around me and just it was it was really it was really odd the weather <laughs> um it it must have been unimaginably odd to people who have never been in such a situation or are unlikely to be in one um but but two years later uh, I don't think anybody would have predicted two years ago whether they meant Ukraine well or ill that two years later Ukraine would still be in the position that it is in. Russia, we think we understand, expected Ukraine to fold up in 72 hours. And the impression I got in the weeks and months that followed that quite a lot of Ukrainians were surprised themselves by how well the country had stood up. Well, surprised and then also not surprised because Ukraine had been holding off Russia in its eastern flanks um, for years before that point, for eight years before that point. And so there was a sense of surprise because people reawoke in their national in their national identity. So they understood who they were, which country they were from. People who before had said, it doesn't matter what language I'm speaking or it doesn't matter what country I'm living in. I don't care. I just want to have a good life. But then all these people sort of awoke and there has been this national resurgence and this renaissance, really, of Ukrainian culture, etc. But at the same time, you know, if you were paying attention and you were there in the country talking to people, meeting people, I mean, I know that Monocle went to Ukraine in the lead up mm. to the invasion and Monocle saw this. Um, you would know that that resistance and that resilience was there. I was actually talking to my uncle who... Um, did a huge trip around the with with foreign news um, media. Um, he did a trip around um, the frontline areas in the weeks leading up to the invasion when things were starting to heat up and those reports of troops massing, increased attacks were coming in. And he remembers on the way back from the uh, front line, he was sitting in the train and he was listening to Ukrainian soldiers speaking who had been, um, who were kind of going home for a break. And they were saying, what is the point in Russia attacking? They know that they're not going to win. They know that we're fighting better than them, even with hardly any weapons given to us by the West. It was a recurring theme in the weeks and months after it, as we spoke to Ukrainians and we spoke to Ukrainian diplomats, to Ukrainian politicians, to Ukrainians uh, from all walks of life, that we kept hearing that, well, one of the many respects in which Vladimir Putin had miscalculated was that if there wasn't a coherent sense of national identity and purpose in Ukraine before the invasion, uh, there was sure as hell one now. Um, but two years later, with the idea that this war is probably, unfortunately, not going to end anytime soon, do you think that resilience is still there, that there's any sign of what would be quite understandable war weariness setting in among Ukrainians? It's always been, I mean, it's been there for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, Ukraine has been under attack from different empires, mainly one of them chiefly is Russia. And that resilience has always been there. My sister's actually translating a play now about um, Ukrainians in the 1930s suffering from the genocide, the forced man-made famine in Ukraine by Russia um, in that time when millions of people died. And she's translating a play which was written expressly to show that that resilience is always there. You can be weary, you can be tired, but you can still be resilient. And actually, I met a paramedic today uh, from the front line who was talking about the same thing. She was saying, I'm tired, but I have to keep going because I have no choice. So, you know, there's resilience, but also you're allowed to be weary at the same time. And But no, you have to keep going. 
Julie, you have been collecting some clips from Ukrainians asking them what continues to inspire them and motivate them and to keep going uh, in the same manner as that paramedic you mentioned. Uh, first of all, we'll hear from Alexandra Matvichuk, who was the founder of Ukraine's Centre for Civil Liberties, which was the joint winner of the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. People inspire me. When large-scale invasion started, the international organisations evacuated their personnel but ordinary people remained and ordinary people started to do extraordinary things. It were ordinary people who helped to survive under artillery fire. It were ordinary people who took people out from the ruined cities. It were ordinary people who broke through the encirclement to provide humanitarian aid. And suddenly it became obvious that ordinary people fighting for their freedom and human dignity are much more stronger than even the second army in the world. So my lessons learned is that ordinary people have much greater impact than they can even imagine. And this is a real inspiration. Alexandra Matvichuk of Ukraine Centre for Civil Liberties. Um, Julie, just to pick up on what she was saying there, she does allude to the extraordinary courage uh, that Ukrainians have displayed and obviously along with that the sacrifices they have made in the last two years. Do you get a sense yet of how this conflict, once it is over, which we must hope is sooner rather than later, will transform Ukraine? Like, What kind of a country will it be out the other side of this? Um, I think there are lots of different aspects to that question. If we start from the youngest in society, children, there has been lots of evidence to show that children are suffering, you know, long term effects, panic, um, distress because of what's happening to the country. But then at the same time, they're also being raised in a society where they're so clearly able to express who they are. They're free and they know that they're free and they know that the adults around them are protecting them in order to allow them to be free. So I think there's this mixture and I think it's the same thing for adults you know and younger adults as well people who grew up well people who like me were basically educated by the revolution that happened 10 years ago and that Mm. started all of this I mean that's the reason that I feel so strongly about my family's country about the place that I'm from and you know, and I and I that's why I feel so strongly because I was raised by that revolution and I think that also that sense of that revolution that is happening now really in people's minds and hearts about what Ukraine means and what it means to be free and what it means to stand up. So I think it's this sort of potent mixture between that trauma, but then also that incredible knowledge that, you know, you're standing up for freedom, the most precious thing in the world. We also have a clip from your conversation with Lib Vishlinsky, who is the executive director of the Centre for Economic Strategy. For me, it's just a patriotism. I love my city. I love my country. I do not want Russians here. I want that we Ukrainians rule our country ourselves. And uh, we could help. Uh, everybody of us could help. Uh, I understand that I could help by uh, finding solutions to economic problems that Ukraine has uh, in times of war. I could uh, advocate for more international assistance. Uh, I could uh, find some funding for our think tank and uh, create new jobs for analysts and pay taxes. And these taxes are used for our victory. 
That was Lib Vishlinsky, Executive Director at the Centre for Economic Strategy. And, and just before we let you go, Julia, I, I was struck by his first lines there, a sort of statement of self-evident fact that I love my country and I love my city. And there's a certain stubbornness uh, on display there. And that reminded me of the excellent book I'm reading at the moment by the Time journalist uh, Simon Schuster called The Showman, which is about President Volodymyr Zelensky um, and you know, well, it, it's it's kind of a biography of him, but also the story of his leadership of the early months of the war. And if there is one quality of Zelensky that comes through, it is this, and I mean it in this context as a compliment, this extraordinary boneheadedness. Uh, the book actually suggests that one of the reasons that Zelensky didn't flee and set up a government in exile was frankly that that's what everyone was telling him to do. So he just said, no, I'm not going to do that. Is it too much of a reach to suggest that there is something of a a national character revealed there? Definitely. I mean, one of the you know stereotypes of Ukrainian women is that, <laughs> um, and well, and men, of course, as you were talking about there, is just this uh, absolute stubbornness, you know, from everyday life up to the kind of upper echelons of government. But I think also once you've seen and Ukrainians have seen this, um, you know, in Chechnya, back in the 90s, in Syria, in Georgia, they kind of knew what was coming. And you know that once Russia turns up in your city, life will never be the same again. And so it's the stubbornness, of course, and lots of people, I, I don't know, seem to almost be willing to allow the Russians in. I mean, if you saw the placards that the Polish farmers are holding up on the Ukrainian-Polish border now, they're blockading the Ukrainian border. And in many ways, this is a kind of Kremlin-driven operation. And one of the farmers is, built, is holding up a placard which says, Putin, come and sort out the mess in my country, come and sort out the mess in Brussels. So some people seem to be blind to what Russia brings. But if you know, if you have your eyes open, of course, you'll be stubborn. You don't want them to come in and take away your incredible life. And the place that Kiev had become from 10 years ago, from the moment of that revolution of dignity in 2014 to now is a vibrant place full of culture, energy, confidence. Why would you want that all destroyed and taken away? Julia Lassica, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. This is The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. It is time now for our weekly letter from, and this week, in anticipation of tomorrow's anniversary, we have a letter from Kiev. Anastasia Galushka tells us why, despite the many challenges, she continues to call the Ukrainian capital home. It's been two years since the start of the full-scale invasion. Sometimes I marvel at how much has changed, how much I have changed. Yet when I make my way out of my apartment, onto the bustling streets of Kiev, the sounds and movements of everyday life deceive me into thinking that the crippling fear I have experienced is just an echo from an old nightmare in the back of my mind. It manages to fool me. I go out with friends to a nice French restaurant called Tre Francais around the corner from where I live in the city center and just a few blocks away from the iconic Golden Gate. We drink delicious wine, eat cheese fondue until our stomachs are ready to burst and we talk about life and work. I walk around on sunny days and admire the beautiful golden domes of St. Michael's while sipping my almond milk cappuccino. I buy flowers from Mila the sweet granny in our local flower store who knows me by name and always greets me with a big smile. 
I love it here. I was in Italy at the time of the invasion two years ago, but I quickly felt compelled to return to Kiev, my home. And I'm not alone. These days, the white boulevards with their sand-colored buildings are no longer stoic and silent. They have been revived by the millions of people who have returned to Kiev, or else have made their way to it from different cities in Ukraine where the danger was too imminent. The eclectic mix of people who have made their way here to the capital is invigorating. From time to time, my brain falters and it lifts the delusion that everything is fine. Horrifying news from the front line reaches my phone. A new friend tells a story riddled with loss, or an old friend has died while defending our country. Fuck, this is a war. The sense of dread overwhelms me and I become just too tired to function. As I lay down on my bed, my phone lights up. Attention, air alert in Kiev. Yeah, we have an app for that. Outside my window, the sirens start to wail almost immediately. I close my eyes with an angry conviction, a determination to remain. Despite these air raid sirens wailing throughout an otherwise peaceful night, whether in the dreary mornings or sunny afternoons, I still see people strolling the streets of this city, not in a rush to get anywhere, not even the bomb shelter. Everyone can choose to hide out in the shelters of their own volition, but it's been a long time since that was the norm. People prefer to live rather than hunker down and wait for a strike. Whatever happens, happens, seems to be the mentality that gets every single one of us through the day. If I'm meant to die soon, death will find me eventually. No use hiding from it. If it doesn't get me today, it will get me tomorrow. So we live our lives. To an outsider, it might seem like we live casually, maybe even carelessly, but there's none of that. Quite the opposite. We live more intently, with an overwhelming sense of joy and gratitude for each and every day. This is my city. Kyiv is loud and boisterous and yet elegant at the same time. It's structural serenity faced with an underlying fierceness from the people who inhabit it. I am so proud to be a part of it all. And whatever happens, happens. I'll take that bet every time. Anastasia Galushka in Kiev. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, on today's show, we are going to hear, it says here, some Norwegian-Japanese musical fusion. No wait, comeback, etc. I am joined to explain all by Monocle's Gunnar Gronlid. Um, Gunnar, what is going on here? First of all, how is there a Norwegian-Japanese musical fusion? (laughs) Well, so... As, no, as Monaco's uh, resident Norwegian, uh, I have to try to plug my country as much as possible. And I also spent some time in Japan, so I have some affinity there. And I discovered that there is a Japanese classically trained violinist who fell in love with the Norwegian national instrument, the Hardanger fiddle, Okay. Um, about 20 years ago. And that fiddle is quite unique. Um, it looks just like a normal violin, except very richly decorated. But it has an additional four or five understrings which resonate with the main four to create a very different sort of rich, plaintive sound 
uh, which almost sounds like there's multiple violins playing at the same time. Okay, this is this is kind of interesting because this this I'm going to admit is a fresh concept to me. Yeah. When I woke up this morning, my expertise in the Hardanga fiddle was limited. But the way you describe it is this maybe, and I'm just chanting my arm here, is this like a violin equivalent perhaps to the 12-string guitar, i.e. you broadly play it the same sort of way, but there's yep. that extra string alongside, which gives it the extra thing. If, in fact, you are actually a tolerably competent guitarist, I have never been able to keep one in tune for longer than 30 seconds. No, exactly. Exactly. It has that extra thing from the extra strings. Okay, so who is the artist who has descended upon the Hardanga fiddle and what have they done with it? So her name is uh, Ryo Yamase and she's a, I believe, Malaysian-born uh, but Japanese violinist uh, who discovered the violin, uh, like I said, about 20 years ago uh, because her sister is a pianist who married a Norwegian and then randomly discovered it and now she's trying to promote the instrument uh, to Japan and the rest of the world. She's even written books on Norwegian philosophy. That's how much she's fallen in love with it. Okay, so we're all clearly going to be playing the Hardanga fiddle this time next year at the absolute latest. But Definitely. We, but you do have some music you have picked out for us which does illuminate what we've been talking about. Introduce the track if you would. Yes, you're about to hear uh, Bjölle Schlatten, which is a more classic uh, Norwegian Hardanga fiddle song. And then afterwards, later on, you'll hear Love Songs from the Fjords, which is an original from Yuri Oyamasa. Hit it. Now, as a Norwegian myself, I can say that the Hadanga fiddle is quite a niche instrument today, even in Norway. So, as a violinist from Japan, how did you first discover it and what drew you to playing it? Uh, firstly, my sister, who is a pianist, married a Norwegian. And uh, when I graduated from college, we had an opportunity to arrange a concert with my sister at the Munch Museum in Norway. During my performing activities, I came across Hardanger Fiddle, a Norwegian folk instrument, which uh, naturally my love of Norway. Uh, Hardanger Fiddle is a very special teach style, learning style, uh, because uh, Hardanger Fiddle don't have uh, music notes. So you're taught more in a sort of very direct way. You don't have a lot of sheet music. You just learn from master to student, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very special case, but uh, the playing uh, technique is handed down from uh, generation to generation. Yeah, the very simple style, I love it. I also want to tell the audience that in January 2023, as a sort of celebration of your efforts in spreading Norwegian culture through folk music, you received an Order of Merit from the Kingdom of Norway, and you were given yeah. the title of Knight. So how does yeah. it feel to be a Norwegian Knight now? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, when this news came in a message from the Norwegian ambassador to Japan, I screamed uh, almost like... Scream by Moon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I am still in the middle of what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But this was on an opportunity to reaffirm that I have been on the right path. 
I would like to thank many people who have supported me. Now I have a, a Haridang Fido students in Japan and Malaysia. The students are doing great and the next generation is starting to perform. My vision is to have more people knowing about Haridang Fido and Norwegian philosophy. That was Rio Yamase speaking to Monocle's uh, Gunnar Gronlid. Uh, Gunnar, while we were listening to that, I was furiously Googling the, the Hardanger fiddle, and you weren't kidding about the decoration. They are really extraordinary-looking uh, instruments. They're not cheap, uh, I, I, have, I no. have been discovering. No, they are not cheap, and even in Norway, they're extremely, extremely niche. And uh, Rio told me a part that you didn't hear, but um, even when she was in Norway trying to find the fiddle, it's very difficult to find them in music shops. They're very rare. Have you ever attempted to play one yourself? No, my dad actually has a leftover one from uh, from my grandparents, but uh, I don't dare. They're, they're terrifying to me. <laughs> I, I think next time you're in Norway, get it out of the attic, see if you can get a tune out of it, and we, we, could, we could have you play live in the studio. This is an idea that is just now occurring to me, Chris Chermak, producer, listening to me now with his head in his hands. The live Friday afternoon daily monocle in-house talent quest. Well, whether the producers want it or not, I'll do it just for you. <laughs> uh, Gunnar Grundled, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Chris Law, Julia Lassica and Gunnar Grundled. Thanks also to Anastasia Galushka. Today's show was produced by Chris Chermak and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening. 